Hello and welcome to episode 9 of On War the Podcast. Tonight, Austin and I return to our discussion of chemical, biological and nuclear weapons, this time from the perspective of non-state actors. Could these weapons in the wrong hands wreak havoc on our society? Or are terrorists bound in the same norms as states? So we're back again, Austin, and uh, still talking about chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear weapons, the well, the unholy trinity, as we called it last week, of, of warfare, but... We're looking today at non-state actors and the use of these kinds of weapons by insurgency groups or terrorists or other non-state actors in the international sphere. Uh, our regular listeners might have noticed that this is a little bit earlier than our normal release schedule. Uh, just a fair warning, we're not doing this as a change to a, a, a weekly release schedule, but given the relationship between these two topics, we thought it'd be better to have the, the second part out as quickly as possible, so the concepts are still very fresh in people's minds, because there's a lot of relation between the two actors using these weapons. Yeah, and we can't really have one discussion without the other. And as Alistair points out, that's that's why we're doing the episodes so close to each other. Um, I think a lot of of our listeners last week would have sort of wondered where non-state actors are. Um, When we talk about CRBN use, the conversation always inevitably comes around to violent non-state actors, or more specifically, people always talk about terror groups. And I think that it is good that we're we're getting around to it now, uh, which was always the plan, and discussing it really in depth, because, in effect, this unholy trinity is what's behind a lot of security decisions and quite a lot of security funding in today's environment. Yeah, I mean, everything from um, a lot of the concerns, both written and unwritten in the Nuclear Proliferation Treaty, um, a lot of concerns post 9-11, and even if you go back, some of the great action films of the 1990s are all about terrorists stealing bombs off trains in, in Eastern Europe. I mean, this is a topic that's been at the forefront of, of many people's minds, both before and after uh, 2001, so it's, it's a, a topic that really needs its own episode. One of the, the big myths, I think, particularly surrounding the use of, of nuclear weapons by non-state actors, um, is there is about how hard they are to acquire, not just nuclear, but other styles of weapons as well. And there's a general assumption that these these weapon systems are the domain of states first and foremost, because the expertise and sort of the knowledge required to build them is insurmountable for a non-state actor. They simply don't have the resources. One of the things that stood out from a, a lecture I was watching, which is linked in the show notes if you want to go have a look at it in full, um, from a guy who works in um, non-proliferation and um, nuclear physics, is that in these kinds of weapons, even a, a nuclear bomb, is hard to make. And this is one of the things that we one of the things that we see time and time again is that it's it's not as hard as you think, first of all, and secondly, it's a big problem if you start underestimating the capacity and the capabilities of these sorts of non-state actors. Later on, we'll look at um, one of our major case studies is um, Om Shirinko, which was a, a Japanese terror group that made use of chemical and biological weapons. And they were able to fabricate um, large quantities of very dangerous nerve toxins all by themselves. In the terms of nuclear weapons, uh, it's worth noting that um, the little boy um, bomb that was uh, dropped on Hiroshima that design of bomb was never tested at all. They did some criticality experiments um, and 
made sure they'd nailed down the theory, but they never actually detonated one of those devices until they dropped one on Hiroshima. So confident were they in its design, mostly because of, of its simplicity. Uh, the little boy device is, is what's called a gun-type nuclear device, and the principle is basically you get two halves of a critical mass, and you shoot one to the other fast enough for it to impact and create the critical mass that then goes nuclear and explodes. And it's incredibly simple to design. They're not used by state-based actors anymore, because they're not very efficient and, um, and not the best way of doing things. But if you wanted to build a nuke, you know, your average intelligent undergrad could design you one of those very easily. That I mean, that's not to say that it's easy to get a hold of the, ma the materials themselves. And again, this this applies almost directly across to your chemical and your bio your chemical and biological weapons. Biological weaponry is, in theory, really simple, right? We're talking about things that occur fairly naturally in nature. We're talking about living weapons, right? In in reality, um, and Armshrinko is a classic example of this a lot of people don't know that before they went to sarin they were trying for a biological attack any biological attack again and we talked about this a little bit in last episode is also incredibly hard to refine it's hard to get to a point where it's an effective weapon now anyone at home can make lethal bacteria right it's really simple i'll tell you how to do it you take a piece of bread you leave it in the sun for six months. There you go, lethal bacteria. Turning a biological agent into a weapon that is capable of inflicting destruction on the level necessary to be called a terrorist attack is incredibly difficult. It's, it's a question of sort of scale and deployability, and there's been some sort of low-tech efforts that have highlighted the ease of that sort of very localized kind of event. So one of the things was in 1978, there were a couple of poisonings uh, that occurred in the Netherlands, particularly amongst children. And what had been discovered was that uh, a shipment of oranges had been contaminated. They'd been deliberately injected with liquid mercury. And so a, a few people, and the numbers are sort of hard to nail down precisely because there were a couple of copycat incidences and a couple of kids pretending to be sick when they weren't and, and things like that. But the numbers were very, very low. But this was nevertheless a, a deliberate attempt on a very small scale, to commit a chemical, in this case, attack um, on a food supply. Now, it was probably, as far as anyone can tell, a bunch of Palestinian sympathizers in a Dutch port with, you know, less than about 200 mils of mercury and a couple of syringes stabbing a few random oranges. But that's not terribly expensive or, you know, it doesn't have a high barrier of entry to do that. And in fact, the fear that spread through this in, in the 70s, in the late 70s through Europe, um, caused a substantial impact in the Israeli um, citrus market for a number of years because people were quite concerned about what had happened. So it's sort of, there are ins and outs to it. There's, there's um, in terms of building a, a, a sarin plant or um, a functional nuclear bomb, um, there's certainly costs associated with it. But there's also, there are lower tech um, points of entry. And there are there are easier way around, ways around these kinds of things. Again, we we come back to the fact that you know it is really easy to, you know, relatively speaking, it is easier to create these weapon systems than you would imagine. The difficulty is how to deploy them in a way that's reliable and effective, 
Um, and how to make sure you don't end up dead yourself. That's something that we need to also consider when we're looking at any one of these weapons is the fact that um, most people end up killing themselves. Um, Arm Shrinker is an is a exemption, largely because they had a large proportion of qualified scientists working on this stuff. Usually what happens is you get someone working on at home in their basement um, and they get found by the police, you know, having died from botulinum um, or from radiation sickness uh, because they didn't know what they were doing um, or the, just simply because these things are inherently dangerous to their user as well as the target. And that makes them unattractive, particularly to lone wolf actors. This is true, and it's true just as much of conventional weapons too. In the 2015 attacks in uh, Paris and the 2016 Brussels bombings, the um, attackers were found to be using uh, explosive suicide belts uh, made out of a very potent high explosive called TAT-P. Uh, TAT-P is uh, acetone-based, so it doesn't set off the normal detectors that, that look for nitrites. That are common in, in the kind of explosives, but it's also incredibly unstable, and its formulation is incredibly dangerous. And up until that point, it had been incredibly rare to be found in um, any kind of improvised device because it was just so difficult to handle. It was a large number of what's um, kind of cheekily called workplace accidents uh, around the Middle East and other areas in the formulation of this stuff, and it's well known that it's been referred to as the mother of Satan by the organizations that even contemplate its use, simply because it's so unreliable. That being said, those attacks also showed that at least someone, somewhere down the line, had managed to figure it out and was then producing the stuff, because of course it then did get used. So you've got to, it's one of these things, it's easy to do, it's easy to fail, and necessity sometimes really is the mother of invention. That said, however, it, it is important to note that the uh, as Alistair's aware, and as I'm sure you know, a number of you guys are also aware. There's been various handbooks of you know dubious repute floating around the internet for you know a decade about various ways to create certain devices, including chemical, biological, and and explosive components. It's not a controversial thing to point out. Yeah, kids, don't try this at home. Exactly, that's important to say. This is. T- a terrible idea to be doing at home. Um, but but it's important to note that, like anything else, violent non-state actors, particularly lone wolf actors, have a level of brand loyalty. Um, and they will quite often go for the techniques, the development tools, the processes that have been used successfully by others in their organization before. What this means, of course, is that law enforcement and security personnel in most modern Western states know exactly what to look for. And so the precursor chemicals and the precursor items you need for most of the well-known biological, chemical, and, of course, nuclear um, attack options are heavily monitored by the state, um, simply because everybody knows that certain things can be developed into weapons. Um, what that means is it's pushed um, lone state actors to either abandon the concept of using these systems because it is difficult to get away with purchasing the well-known ones or to experiment. And that's, of course, when we end up with things like the mother of Satan or people gassing themselves by accident because they're having to experiment because a lot of the well-known items are kept under pretty severe lock and key in this country. 
and most others. Yeah, and a lot of it takes on a sort of almost shamanistic kind of uh, quality. It's a backyard chemistry where the recipe sort of passed down through various people and various levels of training without necessarily always having a full knowledge of what exactly is going on. That said, the, the, the other sort of major fear, particularly when it comes to these kinds of weapon systems, is that a non-state actor doesn't necessarily have to fabricate themselves, because of course, as we discussed last episode, there's a large quantity of these things produced and manufactured by state actors. Sometimes various uh, political events happening in the backdrop create a situation that people are concerned that it might become easy to acquire them. So with nuclear weapons, of course, anyone who likes their action films will be aware of a plethora of, of films depicting the theft or sale of, of a nuclear warhead by some dodgy gentleman in Siberia with a very thick Russian accent. These days, of course, the bugbear in this regard is, is Pakistan and the questions around the security, not just of their nuclear weapons, but also of their other radiological facilities, uh, processing plants used in the production of uranium and plutonium, and also nuclear power plants as well, are, are a good source for not a nuclear weapon, but a, radio, uh, a radiological weapon, a weapon designed to disperse radioactive material to contaminate the ground and, and cause uh, radiation poisoning. The problem with Pakistan uh, is that it represents a large unknown in the international community. Both Russia and America, and Russia even in the 90s, had a number of systems known to be in place with their weapon systems that would prevent their use. Uh, things as simple as safety devices designed to stop the, the warheads exploding in the tube that would require a certain altitude to be reached or a certain acceleration to be reached through to the, the very active security measures um, which are called uh, permissive action links, specialist devices that require codes and things to, to activate. This is the this is the stuff that's behind the, the, the simultaneous turning of the keys or or the nuclear briefcase with the special codes, that kind of thing. Uh, the problem with Pakistan is, although they say they have these, no one knows exactly what they are and how they work, because of course they don't want to release the designs, and therefore how effective they'd be. And that uh, that's, with all of these things, it always comes back to it's it's when people don't know that it becomes quite scary, isn't it? Yeah, it is one of those things. We're always going to have a fear about these weapon systems, and it's for different reasons. The first is, of course, the you know the specter of the nuclear bomb. Everyone's terrified of you know Melbourne being turned into ash and you know glowing sand. The reality is that no one, no non-state actor, has the capability to create a nuclear weapon of that power. More likely, half or, or a third of Melbourne. That's comforting, Austin. Thank you for that. I know. I guess my, my point is that, you know, it is difficult for people in our field to say to someone, don't be afraid of CRBN, because it's much more likely you'll be killed by a firearm or a conventional explosive if terrorists were to come and get you. And it's important to remember that for those of our listeners who are Australian, congratulations, well done, you are much more likely, in fact, twice as likely to be killed by lightning in this country than a terrorist, so don't be concerned. But the fear is always there, and it creates even more difficulties trying to reassure the public if you can't definitively say that it is impossible for violent non-states to get a hold of this technology. And the fact that Pakistan has the bomb and is famously lax with their controls over it, it does not help the situation. No. It doesn't, although there is something to be said for the fact that we did survive the 
um, the glut of arms being flooded in the market of the, of the fall of the Soviet Union. So, you know, there's hope. And I guess it, it really is whenever we start talking about terrorism, and this is the second time we've done it this um, this season on this on this show, and it's one of our favorite topics, so we're undoubtedly going to come back to it again. When we're talking about this, it really is a very, very small thing. It has a very limited exposure. The risks associated with it in any society are very low. And when we're talking about CRBN terrorism, it's the smallest of the already incredibly small chance. It's, it's the lowest of the low as far as the odds of this kind of thing happen. Absolutely. The fact that if it does happen, we'll lose lots and lots of people is a little bit irrelevant. Um, it's one of those things. If you do a risk assessment in any business, um, commercial enterprise, it's a combination between the, the, the damage that the risk would cause if it happened and the likelihood of that risk coming to pass. And for all of these, the damage is extremely high. But the likelihood is so low, given the amount of security implications we have, security regulations we have in place, that the end result is quite minor. But there's a number of other reasons for this, Alistair. Um, and I think it's worth pointing out at this point that it's not just the technical difficulties and the acquisition problems that stop terrorists or, or violent non-state actors, including organized criminal groups, from using this technology, is it? No, there's much more to it than that. And this comes back to our previous discussions in the past two episodes about sort of the norms and rules around how things occur. Now, obviously, terrorist organizations and non-state actors in general are famously excluded from those the, those formal and informal rules about the conduct of warfare, as we talked about in episode seven with regards to illegal non-combatants and, and the state of rebels and insurgents in, in the rules of war. But that doesn't mean they're not impacted by them. So there's a really good book in this uh, written by Benjamin Cole, which is The uh, Changing Face of Terrorism. It's actually not the only book by that title, so look for the one by Cole for this particular discussion, where he looks at a number of restrictions that apply to uh, non-state actors using this kind of weapon system. The first is operational restrictions, which we've already touched on a little bit in the difficulty of acquiring them, um, but there's a little bit more to go on there as well. Uh, political restrictions, and interestingly, theological restrictions. So make sure we've covered all the technical bases here. The first kind of operational restriction is much the same as, as state actors. If you've got a tactic or an idea or, or an attack in, in mind that involves the large-scale destruction um, of property or mass casualties, there is a sort of sense in using CRBN because of their high lethality, the potential ongoing impact they might have through contamination, either from you know, biological weapons or radiological weapons and so on. And also the slow response times. I mean, people really aren't geared up to protect against this kind of stuff. There is a vulnerability. So there's a tactical advantage in doing that. But outside of that, for other kinds of attacks, it's, it's really not suitable at all. Uh, if you've got particularly if you're looking at an insurgency rather than a terrorist group, if you want, if you've got any idea for a repossession or seizure of the target. You can't use a lot of this stuff. You don't want to flood the, the, the weapons cache of the armed forces with um, a nerve agent like VX, because you want to be able to go in afterwards and pick up the guns. And if you flooded it with nerve gas or, or a biological agent, that makes it a, a terrible option. Likewise, if you blow it up, same problem. There, there is also the fact, though, that there is political and social restrictions on them using these weapons that I think we have to consider. It is important that, to note that when we get into the political, when we get into the sociological, we start to get a lot more grey. We get a lot of complexity. Um, you know, terrorism is a tactic, 
It's a tactics that's designed to provoke a response. And, you know, Alistair will have heard me ramble on and ramble on for, for hours about this concept of this diminishing returns of terrorist casualties theory. Um, but the fact is that what they're trying to do is create a situation that they can use the media cycle in order to present the inevitable retaliation as proof that the only way to struggle against this oppressor is through the techniques they're using. To do that, they have to be able to control the narrative. They have to be able to legitimately portray themselves as the victim, as the, you know, the small mouse, the David in this struggle against the Goliath, in order to look effective and in order to look justifiable to their support base. Because like any politician, like any political group, a terrorist group has to have a political support base in order to function. We've been over this in a, in a previous episode. What that translates to, to bring it back to what we're talking about, is the fact that there is this huge, this huge negative social norm against the use of CRBN and this almost primeval aversion to the use of particularly biological weapons in conflict. What that means is the use of CRBN in, is risky to a terrorist group. You know, we've seen with the Italian mafia, for instance, when they blew up uh, the magistrate, any terrorist attack has the potential to turn their support base against them. It's a balancing act. They have to feed their own narrative. The issue with CRBN is the the risk is much higher than in a conventional attack. There's very few, comparatively, ways you can spin detonating a dirty bomb or spreading a chemical or biological attack um, in a way that maintains or builds your support moving forward. You've got to separate here sort of the, the idea of body count um, from the norms we're looking at. Large-scale attacks and, and, and mass casualty attacks have often been used as, as rallying cries for these kinds of non-state actors that have been proven quite effective. The Hamas bombing of Israelis in the 1990s, when the peace process seemed to be pushing through finally, was a great example of this. They were able to derail those talks provoke an Israeli response and generate enormous amounts of sympathy in the international sphere. You can still see this sympathy uh, around university campuses on Australia, in Australia. But when you start playing with a weapon that is almost universally declared evil, when you start dancing with the devil, even if you don't kill as many people as, as for example, a couple of suicide bombers or the shooters in Paris or whatever, you run the risk of taking on the devil's persona. You run the risk of being impossible to relate to. If you lose that relational ability, if you lose that ability to control the narrative, even inside your own small population, um, and it destroys your support, then that's the end of your organization. The biggest kind of issue with CRBN is that because of it, it hasn't been used very much at all. For the organizations, for these non-state organizations, as much as for the, you know, the people who are scared of their use, it is too big of an unknown. It's too big a risk. I mean, Running a, uh, a militant organization is already an incredibly calculated game of balancing risk, and it's just it, it's an unnecessary and very expensive element to bring in. That being said, that's a political consideration, and I think this is a good way to lead into sort of our our primary example here of the, the one time it was used, although it's not the only time it's been used. It's probably the most interesting. When you have a political goal, those are concerns, but there are some theological considerations that can undermine that. If you're not so concerned about maintaining popular support. Now, I know I'm sure Inco's a, a, a big kind of interest of yours, Austin, so I'll let you lead off on this one, if you like. 
I'm so glad you put it like that, Alistair, as if our listeners didn't already suspect me of some strange opinions. Um, Om Shrinko, of course, was the Japanese uh, doomsday cult of sorts, and it might interest our listeners to know that it is, in fact, still active, and an active political and religious organisation within Japan even today, which makes it one of the few organisations to survive um, any sort of major PR disaster um, and then subsequently be okay to the extent where there's actually a photo of me lying around somewhere um, outside their corporate headquarters in Tokyo, um, which was a fantastic experience and, and one that I, I don't actually recommend to people because the the buzzer rang while I was standing there and they <laughs> that was a conversation I didn't want to have. Now, the reason that I didn't want to have that conversation is that it's actually quite, um, at least it was in the mid-90s, it was quite a lethal terror organization and an extremely well-organized and an extremely well-disciplined group. It was effectively a cult. Part of the result of that is what Alistair points out, which is a, a doomsday cult that is trying to bring on an apocalypse or trying to um, has completely dehumanized the, the out, those outside the group. They don't care actually about the public relations. What they care about is achieving their goal. In the case of a doomsday group, it is typically to either kill everyone and trigger the doomsday or kill themselves. And in this case, they don't typically care about PR. Yeah, I think at this point we should jump in too, because I remember a certain uh, political leader of our country that uh, referred to doomsday cults in the Middle East with the Islamic State. And I think eschatological dimensions to extreme religions, uh, that is, um, eschatological refers to uh, reincarnation and doomsday kind of narratives. They're very common to uh, extreme religious movements, many of whom take on a violent act. I think you need to be careful when you're working in this kind of field or even speculating on it yourself to look at what else is going on with the organization and what other uh, goals they're trying to achieve. So I would not put the Islamic State, for example, in the same group as Om Shrinko, simply because if you look at their activities, particularly in Iraq and Syria, there's clearly a political dimension to it. They're clearly trying to shape some kind of territorially bounded political organization that engages in public works and taxation, regardless of how effective it is and regardless of their actual motivations. There's still a populace there that they are trying to appeal to and trying to contain, and there is a political objective, which might be tied to the end of the world or it might not be. So I think you need to, to when you're thinking about these things, kind of make that distinction between someone who puts forward an uh, eschatological narrative, a narrative about the end of the world, because of its power in, particularly when they're trying to appeal to more extreme members of a religion, and a genuine doomsday cult like Omshrinko or another example, although they mainly killed themselves, uh, the People's Temple, uh, famous for their uh, Jones, the Jonestown massacre, the mass suicide there, drinking the Kool-Aid. So what did Omshrinko actually do? We, we've talked about them a little bit, but what is it they're famous? So they're, what they're famous for is actually less relevant to what we're talking about. Um, what they're famous for is the end result of a long process. And the process is actually more interesting, I think, to our listeners. So Om Shurinko is um, basically most famous for the Tokyo sarin attack, which left 12 dead, thousands uh, seeking treatment, and hundreds permanently injured. All of it started, though, uh, several years before. Uh, Om Shurinko actually starts up in the early 80s, but it's it's only after the, the after 1990, around about, 
when they start to go doomsday, when Armstrongo, who believed himself to be a, mess- a messianic figure, um, he is actually still in prison, by the way. Um, his appeals process continues. You can see why, with the doomsday narrative, they would go to the CRBN place. Um, in that respect, though, what we see is a, a transition. So before that, Armstrongo was trying to participate in elections. Um, they failed to do so meaningfully. Um, then the plan was to buy conventional weapons and conduct a conventional hostilities. That failed. And then they went on to biological and then subsequently chemical weapons. So we can see a logical progression there, at least if you take a, a weird version of logic. But there is a progression there. It's not like they started with Sarah. And in fact, there is some evidence, strong evidence, to suggest they actually tried um, several t- different ways of acquiring nuclear weapons. Most famously through their uh, Russian division, they actually had quite a strong Russian presence, uh, where they apparently attempted several times to purchase uh, a nuclear warhead and failed. And there was an entry apparently in one of the Russian member, uh, Russian organizers' notebooks that says something to the effect of how much does a nuclear warhead cost? Yeah, no, that's 100% right. And it's an example of sort of cross-pollination among security experts. That's one of the reasons that people were so worried about al-Qaeda potentially purchasing one off the, a rogue element of the Pakistani, uh, because we had seen it. And at the time, it was only six years prior. That said, though, there were some key differences from Armstrongo. A, al-Qaeda has never been a doomsday cult. Even ISIS isn't a doomsday cult, despite what certain political leaders have said, as Alistair pointed out. The second bit is that Armstrongo was the one of, if not the most wealthy terrorist organization that anyone's ever seen. You know, it was a cult. It was a cult, though, that had pretty substantively advanced and educated individuals in it. They had several scientists, several pharmacists, a couple of physicists, a number of chemists. Now, that's important, of course, because they all participated later on, but they also all contributed their not insubstantial assets, which led to a a combined asset total that was estimated around a billion US dollars. So that's a lot of cash to be splashing around on what was a, a very single-minded goal. It wasn't like this was, you know, a backbench on their agenda. This was their main goal for a large proportion of the early 90s. Now, one of the more interesting things they did with that money was, of course, the purchase of land, um, including somewhere in Western Australia, uh, Bunjawan Station. Um, they were, of course, uh, testing some of their weapon systems. Uh, first, of course, the chemical, wire pestis and then botulinum, and then subsequently sarin. And, of course, we had some a, a very tragic casualty at, in WA, didn't we, Alistair? Yeah, so it came out after the uh, Tokyo attacks uh, that there was this link to the Banjaran station out in Western Australia. It's actually one of the larger stations in Australia. It was about 500,000 hectares in size, a massive area, which is perfect for testing these kinds of things. and also gives you a hint to like how much it would cost to actually purchase that land valuable cattle running property in Australia in the 90s is very, very expensive. Um, and yeah, after the Australian Federal Police uh, raided the property on um, information from the Japanese government, they found, I think it was 29 was the final count, um, dead sheep showing signs of sarin exposure. Interestingly, um, it was the only deaths um, that the group expressed um, sympathy for prior to uh, the the sarin attack. Obviously, post-attack, uh, the remainder of the organization has expressed their sympathies um, and has, at least publicly, and as, as far as I know, and I'm certainly not making any implication otherwise, 
has divorced itself from this identity, ideology, and they maintain that it was occurring without the knowledge and despite the wishes of the cult leader, Um, and they're continuing, obviously, to try and get him released. But they did, prior to this release, a you know, write down in their documentation that they were very sorry for killing these sheep, which is interesting. As I said, though, you know, it was not something that they got to straight away with Saren. There were a number of attacks um, prior to that. Um, they tried to use botulinum, obviously. They tried to use Wipestus. The problem was um, their veterinary contact gave them a sample that was only lethal against cows, um, and so they went through, they developed a very ingenious, actually, sprayer that sat in the back of a truck um, without being apparent to passers-by on the street. And they would drive through Tokyo spraying aerosoled versions of this botulinum out. They did it three times. The first two times were with this modified strain. Uh, the first was, was a modified strain that was only enough to kill cows. The second one was actually used in vaccine trials. And so it was also too small to kill humans. Um, the last time somebody unknown to, to posterity had swapped it with water. And so they were spraying water through the streets of Tokyo. Now, it is, of course, very easy to simply go, oh, what fools. Um, actually, they were trying extremely hard um, and they were extremely bright and we're very lucky that we didn't have mass casualties then because at the time, no one really knew who these people were much less that we were going to take them down. They were prepared to be a, a weird but otherwise upstanding cult. And in fact, before Tokyo occurred, there was a number of successful chemical weapon attacks that the group perpetrated. First of all, and more interesting, they're famous for sarin, but as you said, they had a number of different weapon systems they developed. So this shows you the diversity of their weapons program, if you like. Um, there were a number of assassinations they performed uh, that basically comprised of someone running up to the target and sprinkling a granulated version version of VX, which is a different um, but and slightly more recent um, nerve agent, much like sarin, on the backs of the neck of the target. Which, if that happened to you, and just walking down the street, someone ran up to you before hearing this episode, perhaps, and sprinkled something on the back of your neck, you wouldn't think anything of it. But the skin absorption of VX is an incredibly powerful delivery mechanism, and so they. You know, several of those assassination attempts were successful. Several wound up with people in hospital, and yet still the alarm wasn't triggered. Uh, they also used that van technique to successfully deploy sarin against a number of judges uh, that were involved in a lawsuit against them. They wanted to originally take out the, the judges in the court, the court itself, but decided that was too difficult. So they went to the town of um, Matsumoto, where the majority of these um, judges lived, and, and used the van to disperse sarin in exactly the same way. That killed eight people and left another 200 seriously injured. This was before the Tokyo attack, and that didn't raise the alarm as much as it should have. And again, in the in the benefit of hindsight, we can see that. Um, at the time, this was a, it not even considered a cult. It was considered a, a very powerful religious group at the time. It's like somebody saying that the Mormons, um, or in, in this country, the Jehovah's Witnesses, were about to conduct a terror attack. The Tokyo police were conducting an investigation, but hadn't yet reached the point where they were willing to conduct raids against what was a very respected group within within society and a very powerful one. The day of the attack, unfortunately, and by coincidence, Tokyo police raided their compound. Of course, it was too late to do anything about it. And 
the sarin attack in the subway occurred. We can look back on it now and see all these things that have happened because we have access to those records. At the time, though, it certainly wasn't available to the Tokyo police. Um, we have to remember that this organization was not considered a cult, was not considered a dangerous cult at the time, and in fact had a habit, a tactic they were using to silence critics and former members through lawsuits, through intimidation, and through harassment suits against the police. So in a lot of ways, they're, they're kind of like some of the more modern, powerful cults we see nowadays. This group, however, went and conducted a terror attack. And in fact, towards the end, they were adding assassination, like we said, to the end of that list. So I guess um, Omshrinko is a good kind of case study to look at. There's a couple of things that come out of this. First of all, they did deploy Saren, a very potent no nerve gas, in a coordinated attack, multiple people in multiple subways, um, in a way that would be very hard to detect. And in fact, no one knew what was going on for quite some time. Yet only 12 people died in that particular attack. A few hundred were quite seriously injured and, and suffered lasting effects. But if you look at the combination of both the Matsumoto and Tokyo subway attacks, we're looking at 20 dead, a few hundred um, seriously injured. There are a huge number of contemporary attacks, even a couple of single actor attacks, that uh, if we were going to keep some sort of macabre score on this kind of thing, that would put this way down the list of, of effectiveness. But again, we're not talking about um, conventional military strategy that relies upon the actual effectiveness. You know, that sounds a bit, a bit strange, but what we're talking about here is the ability to generate fear. And this group, despite the small number of casualties, has generated a level of fear that's lasted two decades that directly sparked people's uh, concept of CBRN used by violent non-state actors. You know, this remains the only successful use of a chemical attack against the civilian population in a first world country by a terrorist group. That's worth noting, there are, have been some incidences uh, involving biological weapons, famously the 2001 anthrax attacks. But Omshrinko is a great case study, um, and we're going to focus on that rather than 2001 for reasons of time, because it, it shows sort of the, the limited lethality of these things and, and the limited application of them in practice. I mean, it's, it's this was an incredibly well-financed, well-resourced organization, and still the techniques they were using were dictated by tactical necessities. I mean, how do you get it down into a subway? The, you, you don't have access, for example, to uh, planes and, and, and fancy missiles and things to deploy these things, so you've got to work with what you've got. But also, the reaction against them and, and what it spawned um, shows uh, the other side of it. Even though they weren't concerned necessarily with classic political considerations of, of a, an insurgency or a, a more conventional terrorist organization. The net result of this uh, on the behalf of the Tokyo police and the Japanese government was an uh, enormous crackdown on the organization, manhunts for some of the key members of the organization lasting months, and huge raids across all of their complexes. It took them a long time to recover. They have recovered because of certain protections in Japanese law and, and the way the current members and current leaders of the organization behave and at least seem to believe, but the backlash against them was enormous, and, and worldwide. And Russia cracked down on the Russian branch of Omsharenko in an incredibly brutal way as well. So it sort of, once they deployed it, once they'd done it, uh, they sort of shot their bolts, so to speak. That was it. There wasn't, they weren't going to be coming back from it. So uh, we're coming towards the end of this. Uh, closing comments, I guess, particularly about Omsharenko, although about the risk of CRBN terrorism in general. I think when we look at the unholy trinity, what we're really looking at is the 
the very nature, the core of why we fear terrorism, why terrorism is effective. The unholy trinity, I think, is the is the pinnacle of this. It's the pinnacle of something where we know that it can cause mass casualties. We know that it could happen at any time without necessarily us finding out prior or in the case of biological terrorism at all, really. Uh, a biological terror attack could be in effect for months before anyone actually puts two and two together. And I think that as with any form of terrorism, the fear it creates and more importantly, the level of government reaction and securitization that it allows has really shaped the way that we view ourselves in the world. You know, Armstrong only killed 12 people. Now, that's still 12 families that lost members. Um, hundreds more were permanently disabled um, and injured. But they also changed the world. And I think that, you know, in Australia, we've seen over the highest number of anti-terror legislation bills passed in the post-9-11 era. We live in one of the most securitized countries in the world. Um, we have no right to silence, for instance. I think when we look at this stuff, the, the lesson our listeners should take from this, and I think the lesson that, that we've both taken from this, Alistair, is, is beyond the unholy trinity itself. It's that we need as a community, as a society, to step back and actually ask ourselves, why are we afraid of these devices? And, and what actual steps can we take to get rid of the risk beyond simply putting more power and more influence into the hands of our law enforcement personnel and security agencies who already have the ability, you know, unlike any other state in the world, they have the ability to intrude on our lives in a way that they claim is to enhance the security of us all. And I think terrorism as a whole, as a subset of warfare, it has changed the relationship between the civilian and the armed member of society. And I think that needs to be examined. It does. The other thing I think to take away from this and, and to bring it back onto the topic of the episode of, of CRBN terrorism is that once again we're dealing with an outlier and there are the, the norms related to their use in state-based conflicts apply just as much in different ways perhaps but apply just as much to their use by non-state actors and by and large as you've already said terrorism itself is a very small risk and these are usually very small players with very tightly defined goals when you're looking at the unholy trinity and its use in non-state actors, it gets even smaller again. The combination of the costs of procuring these things, of smuggling them safely, and of delivering them, all are technically possible. And with determination and money and time, as Omshirinko demonstrates, it's possible. But the cost to the organization itself, the, the normative cost to the organization itself, is enormous. And that, I think, probably puts, for most cases, outside of the, the, the unpredictable and unstoppable crazies, puts it well beyond the realms of conventional warfare. Well, that's all we have time for tonight. We hope we've now fully answered your question, Kevin. And for all our other listeners out there, don't be shy. If you have any thoughts of your own, please don't hesitate to chime in, either in the comments below, via email, or on our new Reddit. If you'd like to go the extra mile, please consider supporting us through Patreon. In the coming weeks, we'll be upgrading our recording equipment, but as it is, we're only just covering our server costs. Your support will go a long way to making this happen, so if you've ever thought of contributing, now's the time. As always, further reading on today's episode and previous ones can be found on our blog at www.onwarthepodcast.wordpress.com. Join us in two weeks' time as we return to the tradition of liberalism in international relations and explore the liberal way of war. Thank you for listening, and good night.